welcome back to Securityscape, where we discuss current research and events related to security and strategic studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, December 19th, for part 2 of our episode on security in Africa. If you haven't heard the first part yet, go listen to it and then come back here to follow the conversation. I am your producer, Clarice, and today I would like to welcome Gershan and Professor Roberts again to continue our discussion on African security. It is an honor to have you with us, and welcome to Security Escape. I want us to shift our attention to look at the impact of geopolitics, being it regional or international, on the conflict situation or the insecurity on the African continent. We all know that during the Cold War, this whole idea of international geopolitics played a very important role in the conflict dynamics on the continent. After the Cold War, the UN Security Council seemed to have some level of cooperation towards providing support for peace operations in Africa. But then, as you rightly pointed out, from the 2010s coming down to our current period, that cooperation seems to have broken down. We've seen the return of geopolitics on the continent. Africa has always been the stage for geopolitics, but we see this playing out once again. And the whole idea of cooperation towards providing solution to the insecurity in Africa seems to be waning. What are some of the manifestations of these geopolitical competition on African security. I'm going to start at the level of international rivalry, not necessarily geopolitics. The last major UN peacekeeping mission, like a chapter seven mission, which involves, you know, we can use force, more liberal rules of engagement, was the Mali mission in 2013. So, you know, Mali had had a coup in 2012, both separatists and jihadists, not the same people, although there was some intermingling. Tuaregs had basically declared a separate state in the north in 2012. And so the internal politics of the country were bad. Parts of the country were not under uh, national government control. And then after the coup, those allied forces in the north were starting to march down to Bamako, right, to the capital. And people were really concerned. And the African Union and ECOWAS were out running around the world saying, look, we can't wait. We need military assistance. This included requests to Canada. You know, here's Canada that's been a partner for Africa, has contributed to many peacekeeping missions, uh, contributed to the Libya mission in 2011, etc. Right. So Canada is not a stranger to African security issues. But Canada refused amongst many other countries that refused to actually mobilize and say, well, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. So what did they do? The West left it to France because it was the French sphere of influence. And this was a language that was actually used in that period of 2012, 2013, which sounds like it's coming right out of 1885. This is France's sphere of influence, right? Which is very annoying for many of us at the time. But France intervenes with the assistance of the West, right? So as Canadian uh, C-17 transports were carrying French armored vehicles to Bamako to then drive north and stop the columns coming south. So that worked. And then that immediately then was followed up by um, there was going to be an African peacekeeping mission and then an, a UN mission. And this is, that's basically what happens. A, a UN mission gets authorized in 2013. Within about two or three years after that, there were such deep divisions on the UN Security Council that it's very hard to conceive of there ever being a new UN Security Council authorized Chapter 7 uh, robust peace operations mission being agreed to for anywhere on the planet, let alone Africa. So 
Why is that? Well, it's because we have these deeper rivalries now between the United States and Britain, France, sometimes on its own, not necessarily with the West all the time, but of course, then China and Russia. So the odds of them being able to agree on supporting or even not vetoing a mission is pretty low. Well, what does that do? That means that whether you're a non-state armed group, whether you're the leader of a country, whether you're a military leader that you're planning a coup, you have a sense that the international community is hamstrung, just in a general sense. So you are willing to break domestic rules. You're willing to break domestic constitutionalism. You're willing to break international rules because you don't face any consequences. Now, of course, that was made worse by the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014, which, of course, has nothing to do with Africa directly. But in terms of changing the rules of the international game, that did sort of, uh, in my mind, it actually opened the floodgates so that geopolitics was now, um, again, put at the top of the agenda as opposed to, well, we might face consequences in the international community if we do X. Well, now it's probably you're probably not going to face consequences. You're not going to face consequences at the UN Security Council because you might find at least one permanent member to back your position or that they don't back you, but they just don't want anybody else to have any advantage. So they'll veto it. They won't even let something get on the agenda. But then the International Criminal Court, right, which used to target individuals who were committing the four big, well, the three big crimes. And the fourth crime is the crime of aggression, which is uh, was always under discussion, but genocide, like all these horrific war crimes, the ICC was coming under pressure during the 2010s as well. You started to get more and more African governments withdrawing from the ICC. You had Zuma in South Africa, where South Africa was one of the major proponents of the ICC, almost taking South Africa out of the ICC. So both at the level of interstate conflict um, interstate conflict resolution, as well as the idea of criminal consequences for individuals, the 2010s removed a lot of the constraints yeah. for all sorts of reasons. So that's the that's the global, right? But that global then has, plays out in Africa. So in the Cold War, we had the West, and you had uh, Russia, and then eventually had China a little bit on its own. You had Israel playing a particular role. It would, you know, not necessarily with the West, but for its own interests. But today, you don't just have a Cold War, a bipolar rivalry. It is an absolute multipolar, almost uncontrolled geopolitical slash economic rivalry. It's not just the West and the East. It's China versus Russia versus U.S. versus EU versus Turkey, versus the Gulf states, versus Israel. Japan, Japan has got a presence on the continent too. It just the number of external players, there's no one or two blocks. There is just a multipolar international convergence on Africa. Why is that? Yes, because of the broader geopolitical rivalries that we're seeing over the last 10 years, especially between the West, Russia, and China. But again, that's too simplistic. But also because Africa, we always know this, but it always gets forgotten. Africa really is the natural resource powerhouse for the planet. And, and here I particularly mean extractives. So I don't necessarily mean oil and gas, although that, that's become more important for Europe in the last year. But what I do mean is both the old economy, minerals and metals, and the new economy, minerals and metals, 
Africa is going to be across many categories. Countries in Africa are going to be the number one, two, or three, or might be one, two, and three producer of key elements for the energy transition. So copper, right? Obviously, copper was important for the old economy. It's important for the new economy. Cobalt, tantalite, the platinum group metals, lithium, and all of those, you know, the rare earth elements, which are dominated by China. Gold, of course, is still one of the old ones, but people want. So Africa is going to be in people's reawakened attitudes toward where are the next 20 or 30 years of lithium going to come from or copper or cobalt. And again, we come back to, well, then how does that play out in terms of African conflict and insecurity? So you have countries that have maybe strategic economic interests in terms of securing access to resources. You have international companies, which may or may not be, you know, in line with the countries with which they're host countries. You have national governments who want to maximize resources for their countries. But then you also have Elites within countries that want to maximize their access to resource rents, but not for the benefit of the state. So when you have these, let's say, four different stakeholder groups trying to figure out how to benefit from the newer demand for certain minerals and metals, as well as oil and gas, that creates all sorts of dynamics because this is what I often will tell students, natural resources are a test of institutions. So we talk about the resource curse and these kinds of things. Yes, the resource curse, there's all sorts of elements to this. So step back one more step. Geopolitics, absolutely. You're seeing the international community trying to um, to benefit as much as possible at the expense of others on the continent. That then is also an overlay within which African elites, African leaders, African countries are trying to then, in some ways, benefit from that greater international competition. Because now in the old, the old days, it was like the East or the West. And sometimes you could play, you know, Nariri and Nkrumah, they, you know, they get a bit of aid from both. They could play off both. But now, theoretically, you can play off five, six, seven countries all at the same time. And when you do that, you can actually insulate yourself as a leader or as a regime, because now you can get Uh, military assistance from this group. You can get financial support for infrastructure here. Uh, Maybe you get technical assistance over here. The World Bank is still going to throw in some money here. If you anger any one of these partners, that's not going to sink your entire regime and boat. So you've insulated yourself because of the international geopolitical, geoeconomic um, struggles. And governments that are already, the institutions, if they're already designed to help individuals and, and society, that can be a good thing. You can leverage all of those resources, foreign direct investment, infrastructure. You can leverage those to actually help ordinary people. But if your regime is designed to protect the regime, you're actually entrenching that distance between the regime and the people. You can import weapons. You can import armored personnel carriers and uh, riot control equipment because now there's no restrictions. You're not facing any real repercussions for using, you know, for strategically rigging elections, for beating up opposition candidates. And again, this is where I see all of this playing out over the last decade is with the loosening of international restrictions or constraints, with the rising focus on economic goods, commodities out of Africa, that to me has actually been one of the causes of the decline of democratization processes across the country over the last few years. 
I know last month, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute published an article that you wrote and you spoke very well about this whole conflict in Cameroon. But before we go on to look at that, I want to follow up directly from this conversation. When I was writing my thesis, I had a conversation with this person who is much more into security issues on the African continent. And he told me point blank, he said, look, some of the insecurity issues you're facing on the continent are really well-engineered issues. And the whole idea of African solution to African problems, it's just a facade until we are able to deal with that very source of it, which is mostly by Western countries based on their own self-interest. Because of the resource endowment of the continent, Africa is never good. Some conflict in Africa is never going to end. What is your assessment of this kind of mentality? I know he might not be the only person with this kind of mentality and assessment. What, what is your thought on that? So I do. I hear that all the time. The, the idea that the West has an interest. And again, it's always the West. It's not China. It's not Russia. The West has an interest in keeping Africa insecure. If anybody actually spent any time studying how foreign policy is made in Western countries, other than maybe perhaps France. France is a unique case. The idea that there is some kind of coordinated at a national level or coordinated at a Western NATO or international level to cause instability across Africa, and that benefits the West, that's giving Western foreign policy making too much credit that they can be that organized, first of all, which is sort of counterintuitive. But it is also counter to how the West today, you know, maybe not 50 years ago, 100 years ago, right, during colonial period, that doesn't make sense in terms of how Western companies actually ultimately do better. When you do foreign direct investment, if you really want to get a major resource out of an African country, the last thing you want is instability. The last thing you want is not being sure that your new mine or your new energy infrastructure is going to be attacked, nationalized, uh, the infrastructure is not going to work, right? That just that doesn't make any sense. Now, is there maybe specific companies that don't mind having insecurity in a particular country because they know how to operate there, they're really close to the regime and they don't want competition? Yeah, probably there is. So I would call them frontier or cowboy companies. Those are not the companies that you want as a government in your country because they're not really there for the long term. They're there for the short term to get as much benefit as possible. But you want both um, political security stability. You want to have economic regulatory stability. That is what you want from the Western perspective, because companies themselves, they get punished severely. Mining companies, energy companies get punished severely if there is instability in a country. And I follow Canadian companies in Africa really closely. But if there's an attack on, let's say, workers that were going on a bus to a mine site in Burkina Faso, and yeah. as soon as people understand whose mine that was, that stock price drops 10, 20, 30% that day like that. That doesn't make any sense to me that Western companies who live and die on the basis of their stock price will actually encourage instability. That makes no sense. It does make sense, however, at the level of geopolitics, that when a particular country wants um other countries to leave a country, to sell off, 
to to get out, take their military out, to sell off their foreign direct investment. That to me makes sense. And and so from that perspective, again, yes, I'm a Westerner, of course, but from that perspective, China and Russia for me in the very like in the very contemporary period, the last let's say five to ten years, yeah. to me it would be more China and Russia that like the idea of. Um, either protecting specific regimes which are not accountable because they don't care or creating, fostering, nurturing, cultivating instability in a country which forces out Western interests. Right. So, yes. So, I mean, I do understand that other argument, um, but I just it just doesn't make sense even economically because of the long term investment you need to be able to extract most of these important uh, minerals and energy uh, resources from the continent. That's a very good argument over there. Last month, October, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute published your article on the Cameroonian Civil War, which has been going on for five years now. You pointed out clearly 10 potential pathways to peace. Before we we get into that, I believe very strongly this whole Cameroonian Civil War is something that most people don't know about. They don't even know what core cause of it is. So can you take us through a little bit of a background as to what actually is going on within this conflict? And then we can go into the pathways that you clearly identified. I read a couple of comments on this article online and oh boy, that was really, really, really fascinating. I hope they were the positive and not the negative ones. I read the positive ones. <laughs> There's been negative yeah. ones too. So you know, here here we are in a university, right? You and I yeah. were both in University of Calgary. University of Calgary, unusually in Canada, has always had a strong focus on Africa, right from its founding, across multiple different departments. So, in terms of both teaching, but also then in terms of attracting students, right? Because we have we always have grad students from West Africa, from Ghana, like you, and from Nigeria. So we've always had a long focus on on Africa. And yet, everybody who I've spoken to, I've been following this conflict since 2018. It really began very late 2017, early 2018, but I've been following it since the summer of 2018. During that period, nobody I've spoken to in the university setting, again, I'm not saying everybody's focuses on African politics and security, but anybody I've talked to, whether they focus on Africa in any way, shape, or form, or not, a, nobody has heard of the civil war in Cameroon. Right. And and that, to me, has been shocking. That includes, and again, not outside of the university setting, that's been uh, conferences where you have people that do African political science have no idea that there's a civil war going on in Cameroon. So what I'm working on, I'm working on another article, a follow-up article called uh, Cameroon's Second Hidden War, because at the period of independence, Cameroon had a very similar, although completely different stakeholders, but a very similar small level insurgency leading up to and then after independence in 1960. And it was never talked about. I mean, the French ignored the fact for for decades, the French ignored, they wouldn't even discuss, they wouldn't even admit that they were part of this effort. Because until 1960, of course, it was still, Cameroon was still a French trusteeship. So there is a long history going back to the 50s, right through to today, where Cameroon itself, but the French play down the level of conflict within this particular country, Cameroon. Yes, there was a concurrent war, you know, that was started right at the end of the Indochina conflict. It was right during the Algerian conflict. They didn't try to hide that per se. So there's something unique about Cameroon. And 
Cameroon is not well known in the world. The most I really sort of knew about Cameroon, you know, a couple of decades ago was they had great national football teams. Roger Miller, right, in 1990. That was a fantastic performance by Cameroon. But here's a country that has had the same president now this year for 40 years. President Bia has been in power for 40 years. He's been in power since the second year of the Reagan presidency. Very few other countries in the world have had leaders around that long. Right there, that should tell you something about governance issues, right? I'm coming back to the governance thing. So Cameroon becomes independent in 1960. That is the French part of Cameroon was a French trusteeship. In 1961, the smaller, less populated, yet um, economically quite rich, Anglophone or British Southern Cameroons became independent by joining French Cameroon. So you basically have a reverse of Canada. You have 75% of the population predominantly in the French areas and 25% in the English speaking, but not everybody speaks English, but the British Southern Cameroons. So it made sense then for Cameroon to become independent as a federation, which it did. However, the federation was never very entrenched. It wasn't very institutionalized. It was effectively washed away in 1972 and Cameroon became a unitary state. And basically since that time, there has been marginalization of the people that are from the British, the old British Southern Cameroons. So this is a longstanding divide. France has been very supportive of these governments. They've only had two presidents. France has been very supportive of Cameroon through thick and thin because it doesn't want, basically it never wanted to allow Cameroon to become what they would call Anglo-Saxon influence in their sphere of influence, right? Their sphere of influence in Africa. Fast forward to 2016, lawyers, teachers, students, in October of 2016, in the Anglophone regions, the two Anglophone regions, um, started to protesting or started striking because they were really upset with the imposition of French language teachers, uh, the access to better schools, the uh, French language judges being put in the civil the civil law court system. And but these were peaceful protests. The lawyers were dressed up in their robes and marched down the street. It wasn't nobody picked up a gun. And yet, right from the very beginning, these protesters were either they were beaten, they were humiliated. And they were often arrested and sometimes for weeks or months at a time. But that was, you know, that was just October 2016. The protests increased over the next little while and civil society organizations started to form uh, because there seemed to be no political solutions to these crises. The elections in Cameroon are not people don't vote for the most part because they don't feel like they can change anything. So a year later, a particular group that was forming along those lines declared independence for what they would call um, the, the area of British Southern Cameroons, which people call Ambazonia. And the government then came down even harder. They were shooting people at protests in late 2017. So in November 2017, for the first time, uh, there had been an actual attack on security forces. And so from November 2017, very, very small scale insurgencies started. But by February 2018, the government decided we're going to crush the rebellion. And they brought much of their forces from the north. Again, this is the Boko Haram issue. They yeah. brought forces from the north down south. They started building bigger bases, a new military headquarters. And they were just going to crush the small number of what they would call separatists and terrorists and just have a military solution, like what happened in, in the 1950s and 60s. Right. A military solution, not a political solution. 
Of course, what's happened, though, is that the insurgents, who at the very beginning were very small in numbers and only had basically homemade shotguns, which are called Dane guns, uh, historically. By 2018, we're using IEDs. Uh, 2019, 2020, these groups were getting larger. They'd rise up. They were very small groups, very community-oriented groups. Uh, but they ended up becoming fully equipped with assault rifles, machine guns. The odd group had RPG launchers. They all used IEDs. So it became effectively from a low-level uh, political crisis, which could have been solved with compromise, because of the militarized repression of the government, it generated a complete armed resistance. Now, the armed resistance is not coordinated. This is a this is multiple small groups which often don't talk to each other. Some of these groups have become, as I say in my piece, some of the groups have been more interested in kidnapping than actually fighting security forces. But you've created a complete zone of instability where for three to five years, some families have not been able to put their kids in school. You've had 200 to 400 villages burned down by the military. You've had anywhere from, I'd say, 5,000 to 10 to 15,000, nobody knows for sure, people killed either in combat operations or um, you know, by either side or you know, innocent bystanders. You've had over a million people displaced at different times. So this is, again, it's low, low level, but it's, it's become a humanitarian crisis for maybe a quarter of the Cameroon population, and it's impacted the economics of the country, it's impacted the standing of the country, and yet the international community, whether it was regional in Africa or international, didn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Only one time in the last five years has there been even an informal discussion about Cameroon at the UN Security Council. But that was an informal discussion under the ARIA formula. So that's where we are today. So here we are. I wrote a piece four years ago talking about this, this war uh, that was emerging. And I, and I never thought four years later I'd still be talking about it. Right. Ethiopia was horrendous, but we hope it's been solved in two years. Why do African leaders and why does the international community let the Cameroon Civil War keep going for five years? First of all, because nobody knows about it. Second of all, there doesn't seem to be any real international consequences, but there are. But thirdly, it's because nobody's been willing to actually create any consequences for the BIA regime to actually uh, get involved in real negotiations to solve this. Right. So unfortunately, because they've dragged there for so long, where most Anglophones at one point would have said uh, a renewed federalism was the solution to the problem a much smaller proportion of Anglophones would actually promote, would think that federalism was a solution to the problem. Most, I would say, think that this government has been so horrendous, we don't assume that they will change, even if Bia leaves office, that independence is really the only permanent option. We know that independence and secessionist uh, conflicts are rarely find that kind of final solution in Africa. Somaliland's been independent for 30 years. It's not officially recognized. So in my paper, I outline the reality of that situation, that those who want independence now need to actually enter into processes where independence now is not the first option. It is maybe something that's down the road. And that's really what I was trying to do in that paper. Central Africa, African and international communities really don't have an immediate impulse to say, okay, yeah, the solution's independence, we're just going to let you have it. That's not going to happen. You need to actually enter into negotiations, pushing hard as you can for those things you think will make your life better. 
But that can only happen if the international community is willing to put some pressure on the Bia regime. And I think what we saw in Ethiopia was the AU um, sitting around with, you know, particular leaders, both from Ethiopia and the TPLF, and saying, look, this will never be solved this way if you are going to, you know, maybe they even threatened, maybe they did this, maybe they threatened, maybe the AU should leave Addis, maybe we'll take the headquarters out of Addis Ababa, right? Um, there needs to be consequences for people that if they're not willing to actually engage in real negotiations. So that's all I was trying to do. I was just trying to lay out what the actual situation is this year. It wasn't like a specific, this is the pathway to peace, but these are the considerations that particularly the international community needs to have in mind for there to be even a pathway to peace for for a civil war, which is affecting millions, um, but which the international community has mostly washed its hands of. One point that struck me when I was reading your piece was the very last point where you pointed out that if there is anything we've learned in Mali, Burkina Faso, and the Sahel region in general, is the fact that we can't trust France yeah. to lead an intervention in finding solutions to some of these problems. I want to take it a little bit further to look at, in fact, the whole idea of Western-led solution to African problems. We, we saw it in Libya after NATO's invasion, nothing happened. We see France in Sahel, nothing is going on. We see the EU, Task Force Takuba in the Sahel, nothing is going on. Wagner Group is coming up and by all means, that's also not going to lead to any reasonable solution to our problems. What do you make of this whole notion of Western-led solution to African problems? Western-led is a problem. I don't think they should be Western-led. But here's the problem. Cameroon has been badly governed. You know, Here's a leader that's strategically rigged elections, changed the constitution to stay in power, rules basically as a kleptocrat. Where are the other African leaders complaining about BIA? Nobody does, right? So at one level, the African leaders are falling down a bit because they don't want to call out a leader who has done everything he can to stay in power. And it's not he's not winning elections because he's driving economic growth and prosperity for the average person. So if African leaders are not willing to deal with BIA for all sorts of reasons, right, they don't want to be seen to be interfering with internal political affairs, which is true. There's a certain level of sovereignty that we have to all assume everywhere, not, no country is perfect. But if you're not going to call out a regime which is arbitrarily killing civilians, let alone arresting civilians and putting people in jail and, and arresting a presidential opposition party leader and putting him in jail for months, if African countries aren't going to call him out, at some point, the international community, if they are concerned at all about what they say they're concerned about, human rights, right, all, you know, democracy, if you're really serious about that, then eventually you have to do something. Does that mean it has to be Western-led? No, but it has to be Western-supported because the Cameroon problem was created by the West. It was created by the United Nations, France, and Britain, which effectively didn't give the Anglophones in the British Southern Cameroons, an option to be independent. It was either you join Nigeria to be independent or you join Cameroon. That was it. And right. then Britain washed its hands once the uh, the, the the handover took place. Uh, Cameroon security forces, you know, which were already, you know, effectively integrated with France, moved into those areas. Federalism never really was in place. And then it was wiped away by 72. So the West has culpability in terms of 
the failed decolonization processes of 1960 and 61. So absolutely, the West has a role. Now, should that be led? No. But there has to be responsibility of the West as part of this. And the international community as a whole needs to be able to create at least an environment of carrots and sticks. And I don't I don't know if I use carrots and sticks in that, but I've always talked about carrots and sticks. There has to be consequences for um, all stakeholders, not just the government, any potential spoilers. There has to be stakeholders. Uh, there has to be consequences for stakeholders to get them to be serious about consequences if they don't live up to their word, if they don't negotiate in good faith. That's all I'm saying. So rather than Western-led, at this point, there is evidence that there's Western-mediated processes that are ongoing. And Canada is involved to a level, uh, but it's not leading that particular effort. So that's all I'm saying. The international community has a role to play. It's not going to lead the effort. But if they ignore it, Cameroon, the regime itself, is benefiting from other African governments ignoring the problem and also the international community ignoring the problem. So, yes, not Western-led, but certainly Western engagement. Thank you so much for your time. But before I let you go, I know you're a very busy man, but before I let you go, I have come across this platform, African Navy's Research Network, which I realize you are one of their conveyors together with other UCAGRI professors and some graduate students. Why this shift to African navies? Because every conversation we've had now is about internal conflict. But this whole project blew me away. Why African navies at this time? And why UCAGRI? Yeah. You can't get farther away from the maritime domain of Africa from Cal- than Calgary. We're a thousand <laughs> kilometers away from any ocean, right? So it doesn't make any sense. However, that goes back to what I said earlier, which is you Calgary has always had a broad African focus across political science, history, but also archaeology and studies, interdisciplinary degree. We have a development studies inter- interdisciplinary degree. So you Calgary makes sense in the in the sense, in the broad sense that we do like to do interdisciplinary African studies. Right. African navies are the most understudied element of, let's say, African security issues. People study African armies and African armies in terms of their peacekeeping or their involvement in politics or their involvement or non-state armed groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the maritime domain, right? The navies, the navies are institutionally very different. They're usually capital intensive with not as many personnel compared to the armies or even the air forces of Africa. So uh, Tim Stapleton, again, who's our, uh, an African military historian in the, our Department of History and I, plus other uh, people that are both in the History Department and in the Political Science Department, uh, I can't even remember what, what instigated the interest other than the gap, the research gap. There is a growing interest in African maritime security issues. There, there is some, you know, the, there's excellent organizations, the, the ISS. Um, Internet, the Institute for Strategic Studies out of Africa with offices in South Africa and Dakar and other places. They're doing some fantastic work and scholars around the world in Africa, outside of Africa, doing some fantastic work on the maritime domain, African security at sea, all these issues. But there's never been, and we did a lot of searching, there's never been real sort of institutional analysis of the development of post-colonial African navies. And so this is that gap that we were trying to fill. So with a little bit of money from 
the Calgary Institute of Humanities that Tim, Tim Stapleton uh, received, as well as a little bit of money even from the Canadian Department of National Defense Mines Program. Over the last couple of years, we've started to coordinate a global network. We want as many scholars from Africa or Europe or Canada that work on some element of African navies that are interested in their development, their role. You know, the roles doesn't have to be just purely uh, military. It could be their social role. It could be their role in fisheries. Um, but it could be, you know, how did they transition from the colonial era? Then how did they actually develop, right? Because that's a it's a new institutional environment um, that, that often involves big procurement decisions, especially in that immediate post-colonial period, right? So if if maritime security is important for economics, right, if we don't, you know, at the moment, I mean, some geopolitical rivalry, absolutely. But at the moment, what is the most important element of the maritime domain for most African countries? It is fisheries and it's piracy and it's export and import safety, right? It's those issues and, and the environment, which is something we haven't talked about today. That could yeah. be a whole nother podcast about the role of the environment in conflict. But if African, you know, if, for instance, the the crisis in Somalia, which we now know as the rise of uh, of Al-Shabaab and uh, Islamic fundamentalism, we all know that part of the story. But if we actually go back and see yeah. how the piracy issue in, in Somalia evolved to the point where you, you have international organization to fight Somali piracy, why does it start? Because the breakdown of the Somali state led to the complete absence of any maritime governance. And what happened then? You had foreign fishing fleets come into the, to Somali waters and just start harvesting at an industrial scale with no consequences. And so then people, because there was no government at the time, people would then get in their boats and head out and try and get stop the fisheries. You also had big ships coming in and dumping all their waste in Somali shores. That is where Somali piracy comes from. It comes from the dismantling of the Somali state and its ability then to actually um, enforce its economic exclusion zone. So we always focus on the piracy and we focus on, on Al-Shabaab. But if you actually look at what causes that kind of environment for piracy to, to actually emerge, it was a, a lack of maritime governance from the, from the basically the absent Somali state. Right. So for economic issues, uh, for development issues, for environmental reasons, African navies, the growth of African navies is critically important for the for the blue economy and the health and the future health of these countries, as well as your typical national defense issue. So we're just trying to fill a gap. And I just like to announce that uh, the first book that comes out of this project is actually coming out in November. So that's an edited collection of studies, uh, including people from UFC, but around the world. And we're looking at, we're doing future webinars, we're doing future articles. Uh, this is going to be an ongoing global research network trying to fill the gap on research on the institutional environment and the operational deployment of African navies. Thank you so much, Professor Chris Roberts. This has been a very insightful discussion today. We hope to get in touch with you again somewhere along the line to discuss more about um, African security. I'd like to thank you a lot for your time, your insight, and then the rig discussion. Thanks. It's been fun, Gershon. Oh, it was fun for all of us. And this wraps up a really good conversation about African security issues. Thank you again, Gershon and Professor Roberts, for joining us today. Special thanks to our editor, Quinn Hawk, for taking care of all our episodes. 
And thanks to the listeners of our Securitsky podcast. You can find us at Securitscape on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Stay tuned for the next episodes. See you next time. That was Securitscape.